You're listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It's not just radio, it's community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts on KOPN, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly arts show. My name is Diana Moxham. This week on the show, we traverse the worlds of theatre and fine art. Later in the show, we take a look at the creation of art as a way of healing and talk to Sega Browdis Gallery Director Hannah Reeves, along with two of the artists who are in the gallery's May exhibit, Jeffrey Leader and Brenda Stumpf. First, though, we dive into a brand new tragic comedy written and devised by Elizabeth Broughton Palmieri, founder and executive director of Greenhouse Theatre Project. Since founding Greenhouse with Emily Adams in 2011, Elizabeth has been instrumental in bringing a very different style of theatre to Columbia. Highly physical, visceral performances which send a corporeal ripple through their audiences. She's a master of adapting classic works from Shakespeare to Ibsen and is also a stellar playwright have her own hard-hitting, insightful works, the latest of which is called Being Here. Welcome back to Speaking of the Arts, Elizabeth Broughton-Palmieri. Wow, Diana, that was an introduction. I think I can just leave the room now. <laughs> I don't know if I can live up to that. And I, I'm delighted that you have brought along with you today Jenny Hipshire too. Yay, Jenny Yay. Hipshire, one yeah. of our company actors and artists with Greenhouse for the past three years. Long time alum. It feels like you've been around for a long while. And you actually moved to Columbia because of Greenhouse Theatre. I did, yes. Yes. So Elizabeth brought you in from New York in the beginning. Is that where you were? I was sort of like, yeah, I was passing through on my way to New York. um, And so she brought me back from there at the end of a big bike tour with a theater company. We were traveling across the country and then she saw me here and then brought me back. And you loved it so much you bought a house. I did. Yes. (laughs) However. Yeah. (laughs) There is is sad news, too, because Mm. you are leaving Columbia to move back to New York to go to grad school. I am. Yes. Going is to, this your last production? This is my last production for for now. Mm-hmm. You know, unless she, you know, pulls yeah, I me mean, back. I mean, and there's <laughs> always like the future, but yeah. yeah. Uh, if, yeah. If, if if people of Columbia want to see Jenny Hipshire, the amazing Jenny Hipshire on stage, this is your time to do it next week because she will go on a hiatus and uh, do her own incredible work in um, studying applied theater in New York, which I'm incredibly excited for her about. Well, I do hope that you will come back and visit us and that Elizabeth can, you know, reel you back into Columbia for a couple of the <laughs> upcoming shows. So I do feel like I wait for Greenhouse Theatre Projects to show up, like I wait for my birthday. And then a show is here and it explodes with energy and then it's over and I'm always left wanting more. <laughs> how, how does the cycle of show production and presentation feel to you, Elizabeth? Oh, wow. It's like each production is like a lifetime for me. So I feel like I've lived many, many, many lives. I feel like I'm born in the process and, uh, you know, I struggle (laughs) through it and I find myself, I lose myself, I find myself, I lose myself, and then I die. (laughs) And then I, you know, have to pull myself back together and and, uh, get to work on the next project. So, so yeah, that's kind of, in a nutshell, my creative process. (laughs) Do you feel changed by every production you create? 
Absolutely. I think that, you know, why else do we embark on these kinds of artistic journeys, but to seek some kind of transformation? Sometimes, you know, it's something that I'm anticipating to happen. And sometimes that transformation is unexpected. And sometimes the rug is pulled out from underneath me. And you just kind of have to work with it and be flexible and, and understanding. Jenny, could you pinpoint a show that you feel you left a different person after you'd finished acting in it? That one's easy for me. It was definitely Frankenstein. Um, yeah, that one just it pushed me physically, emotionally, artistically, just in all the ways. And and I really, I loved, I was so in love with that character that at the end of it, it really did feel like this death and I had to kind of grieve it. And it, and and. The character still lived in my body for a long time. So, um, yeah, that was definitely the one. Last time you were on the show, which was really only just a few weeks ago, for your Living Room One Act series, Mm -hmm. which were performed in three different private living rooms around Columbia. (laughs) And now already you are back with a brand new work called Being Here that Mm -hmm. you wrote, devised, directed and are performing in. Correct. Overachiever. What, (laughs) What is Being Here about? Being here, um, wow, it's about a lot of things, but at the center is a woman's story who this woman, Annie, is dealing with her own demons. You know, she has mental illness and depression, anxiety, these, these things that have been living in her body for a long time. And uh, as you embark on this journey with her, uh, we start to dig in and uncover um, the roots of, of some of these issues that she is dealing with. And we're able to kind of uncover those things uh, through her therapy and through a friendship that she uh, devises or creates, you know, throughout the, the piece itself. And it's not a coming-of-age story. I mean, it, it is and it isn't, but it's um, it's like a finding-yourself story. And yet, at the same time, once once you find one aspect of yourself, I think it peels back a whole slew of layers that then you have to deal with as well. So yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, there's it's a multifaceted piece. The heart of it, I think, it is kind of this really basic, realistic story that I think a a lot of us are going to, when you see the piece, you're going to relate to these characters. You're going to know these people. These people are you. These people are friends of yours, uh, people. And and actually, in the process, like the pre-production process, uh, before I started writing it, I, I interviewed and spoke with several community people who deal with mental illness or who are partners of people who deal with mental illness. And, you know, and it was important to me to work with people in the community, talk to people in the community, because I wanted this piece to be, um, I, I very much so wanted it to be a community piece, because ultimately it is about how we need, we need a group of people to take care of ourselves. You know what I mean? We can't do these things on our own. Do you play Annie? I do. Mm-hmm. And Jenny, are you Powley or the therapist? No, I'm the therapist, Joe. <laughs> okay. mm-hmm. So now you described the work in, in the introduction you sent to me as being inspired by ancient Greek tragedies, mm-hmm. and in particular Antigone, mm-hmm. which was penned by Sophocles around 440 BC. So tell mm-hmm. me what it was about Antigone that had stayed with you. I knew early on that I wanted to follow uh, the th- 
thematics of Greek theater because Greek theater is so epic and uh, all the characters are in a state of turmoil and and there's this like constant state of discovery and the discoveries uh, lead to a lot of painful realizations and so it's really like big epic work you know and the emotions are so big in Greek theater so that was definitely like this this inspiration that I had and you know narrowing it down a little bit more to Antigone. Antigone focuses on um, this woman's story where she she returns home to bury her brother uh, who's been kind of left out. <laughs> I think I said literally in the email to you to rot or something. And anyway, it's kind of this really dark transformative story in for her, but it was, you know, a loose inspiration for me for this piece, yeah. Right, because Antigone isn't so much about mental health, but more about the morality or the lack of morality of man and what happens when somebody defiantly stands up to an immoral leader. So do you have components of that kind of defiance and morality woven into being Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that the thing too is that Annie is kind of her, her own worst enemy in this piece and she's fighting herself through these battles that she is putting herself in. And some of these battles, she can't, you know, they, they were thrust upon her and she couldn't help it. And I think that that is, you know, true to our lives. You know what I mean? We, things happen to us in our, in our journey through life. And it's about how we react to it as opposed to let it affect us. And, and I think that to me, again, like with Greek tragedies, oftentimes because they are called tragedies, you know what's going to happen. Everyone's going to die, right? And so I kind of love that I going, going in that direction and taking people in that direction on that ride with you. But then does that happen? Is that our demise or, or finish and and I'm not going to say anything because I don't want to like, you know, spoil anything but it is a tragic comedy so I want people to understand that there is the there's the comical aspect to the piece itself because I mean if you've ever read well I mean Chekhov or like any of some of these great playwrights who just naturally wove uh, the comedy into the tragedy you know you're like like he's like Chekhov says like you're laughing through your tears like that's what all of his characters are doing all the time and that's kind of what I see these characters doing all the time you know what I mean in order to continue on and survive sometimes you have to just <laughs> laugh and cry at the same time but this piece specifically like dealing with Annie's issues I was really drawn to this idea that like what if all these tragic Greek characters were actually in therapy you know and if we like take them to a modern era and we like bring them into this like situation where they actually have access to maybe some help in these situations what what would that what would that look like and so that's kind of where we're at and with Annie working with her therapist Joe they have this push-pull relationship where they're challenging each other throughout the piece and you see you know you see how that plays out and how it's able to crack into some things so Jenny, tell me a little bit more about Joe and Annie's tumultuous relationship. Well, I wouldn't necessarily say call it tumultuous. It just, but there's tension there for sure. I think it's like I'm this character in general. You know, we we have these therapists perhaps in our lives who are people we pay to listen to us, and and I have no other relationship to her outside of that space, that professional space, and yet there's some investment 
at the same time there is, and it and it is emotional it's not only it's not a financial investment it goes beyond beyond just that so um, there's something there and like how how much do I invest um, what is this connection here we're two people learning I'm learning like some of the most intimate things about her that possibly she's never actually told anyone and I'm also just observing things that she's not even conscious of and so the tension comes from I think my character trying to hold up the mirror and that I think is some of the hardest stuff you know that happens in in our love relationships consciously or unconsciously and in a therapist relationship the idea is that there's sort of that conscious practice of like here's the mirror I'm going to hold you to your highest self and so I think sometimes actually tension comes from when someone is sort of holding holding us to our highest selves Mm. and we're like oh but it's so much easier to go back into the pattern you know and mm-hmm. um so i think there's that tension that and i have to constantly keep and at the same time i can't push her away otherwise we, i lose her forever and so i think the tension is that in the push and pull and and also this the thing that happens sometimes is like the projection of mother child relationship too mm-hmm. so that's in there as well yeah so that's the other thing is that these other two actors so there's three of us in the piece plus a a dj um, who kind of acts as a, a character as well. And there's a Greek chorus in the piece, so Jenny and Ian actually play multiple characters. Why do you think Annie chose Joe as her therapist? <laughs> she didn't. Yeah. Or my, did she? I don't know. I don't know. That's a great <laughs> question, actually. My parents technically pay for my therapy. <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she Annie has kind of a a severed relationship with her parents um, because she's this adult child who just is finding it really difficult to take care of herself. And uh, so this is kind of like the one last thing that they are doing for her is they're paying for a therapy, but they've cut her off from, from everything else. And so, you know, whether or not Annie chose Joe, that's we haven't really talked about that, actually. But she's landed on her. But she's landed on her. <laughs> and they form a relationship. And the relationship is something that I think Annie rejects at first. And, and then and then you'll have to see. But yeah, it's, I think it's that process, too, I think, with the therapist that happens, too, of, of gaining trust. So it's, mm-hmm. it's like we assume that that relationship, but actually it has to, there's still a lot of work. It has to grow and work. develop yeah. just like any relationship. Yeah. So tell me what drew you to mental health and what prompted you to create a work about depression? Mental health is something that almost everyone I know deals with in some capacity. And I think that there's a stigma around it and we don't feel comfortable as human beings, as communities, as a country really discussing it. But I think that we're kind of in a crisis right now and we do need to you know bring the conversation to the table and make it a more you know natural thing to to talk about personally i myself dealt with postpartum depression after i had my child and i you know i'm just in a community of people where i'm listening to what's going on and i'm empathizing and i i'm compelled to to create these kinds of complex characters but like I said they're characters that I think are highly relatable and even though I was going off these huge Greek themes when you like whittle it down they're just everyday people dealing with these everyday issues and I think that 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 to me was what was interesting what kind of story can we tell that is as honest as it can be but still have a lot of dancing in it. 
I was going to ask you about <laughs> the dancing. You talked about music and dancing playing a large role in the story. Mm-hmm. So tell me about the musical works you chose and how you settled on those pieces and how the dancing weaves mm-hmm. into the story. So the music selection was a collaborative effort, I think, between like Jenny and myself. Normally when I go into it, a piece I have like been listening to music and reading and like watching films and like doing all of this work for months and months and months and I know exactly the music that I want to use in something I know exactly like because I just am that kind of controlling person <laughs> and you know and it's also my my company but this production was totally different I wanted to approach it from a, again a very community based approach so I wanted my my greenhouse community to have a hand in every aspect uh, of this piece and and ultimately you know yes I wrote it but um, Ian and Jenny have been incredibly instrumental in editing and workshopping and devising this piece you know a lot of this happened in the process of the rehearsals and so the music along with that was something that the first week of rehearsals we kind of put together our Spotify list or whatever and uh, and then just started working with stuff working with the movement if that and that you know those those pieces worked with what we were trying to tell because most of the time the dance and the music when that's occurring on stage it's telling a story it's not random fluff to like now we have a dance number it's not that at all I that's anyone who knows greenhouse and me would know that 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 would not really be the case I I wouldn't just like throw a dance number into something although even if I wanted to I, I wouldn't do that but this was this was the piece where we needed it and so the dance tells you know part of the story and the dance ultimately is I did a lot of research on dance therapy before I went into you know writing and working on this piece, and I was I was intrigued by just alternative forms of therapy because I'm also an an alternative therapist, and um, I'm I'm interested I'm fascinated in emotions that live in the body and the fact that you can't always access them through talking about it. Sometimes you have to puncture or break in in another way, and and sometimes that comes from some kind of physical therapy. The music you chose, you have some pieces that are kind of upbeat. You have a Rihanna work. Mm. You have a club. Club, like dance club music, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you have some much more internal, thoughtful pieces. You have Philip Glass. Yes. And yeah. you have Vorjak as well. Yeah, so like Slavonic dances. Annie in the piece, she, I don't want to say suffers from these dreams, these dreams slash nightmares, but... Yeah, I mean, for lack of a better word, she kind of suffers from these um, reoccurring dreams that she has. And there's a lot of information locked into these dreams, which uh, she's able to dissect with her therapist. And that was kind of fun, too, doing a lot of research on just, like, dream therapy, because that's a thing. It's really cool. You should do some research on it. But then you'll start analyzing all your dreams and that's not good because that's what I've been doing the last month. <laughs> I'm like, oh my. And I'll, actually this has been the craziest part is during this show, I've been getting several messages from people who will say, oh, I had a dream about you. And I'm just kind of like, what? Because they won't elaborate. They'll just kind of be like, are you okay? I had a dream about you. I'm just like, oh, thanks. So there's just been a lot that's been kind of like circulating about that. So yeah, so the dancing and the music, it plays a role. Like the music that we selected, I mean, it's dance club music because um, we're actually the pieces set in a dance club. And so that was kind of an important part of it. I think there's something too about some of it is is also pop music and then there's sort of like I don't know, it's like alt 
pop kind of stuff. Yeah. And I think it's like part of it too is like it's like the epic music of now in some right. ways that gives this like that kind of right. yeah that epicness that speaks to the Greek tra- that exactly. that feeling, but it's set but very much set now. Yeah. So. It changes the emotions really fast and in, in in the moment, and that was what I wanted. There's just like this shift, and you feel it, and you'll see it too. And it, and I think it's going to be hard for people to sit still. Well, I was wondering if the dancing was actor-only dancing or whether there was audience participation <laughs> invited. Well, you know what's funny about that is I, I know several people who would love to get up and participate, and I know several people who've actually already spoken to me who are like, you're not going to make me get up on stage, right, because I'm not coming. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm just like, oh, my God. But they don't know with Greenhouse because we are kind of, you know, we're chancy like that. Sometimes we do incorporate the audience and things. But no, I mean, in this piece, we will not be pulling anyone up on stage to dance. However, post-show, you may engage in a little dancing if, if you wish. Now, the production is going to be at The Industry, which is a bar slash club located behind the Tiger Hotel. So talk to me a little bit about that space and how it works performing a show in a place that is presumably open for regular business, both before and after your show it's kind of more of an event space now it used to be a bar when it first opened and now it's it's kind of transitioned to more of an event space so it's actually not open during the day when we're in there and we'll kind of have full reign of it this this upcoming week but it, but it's nice because it has all the things that you need that it would be in a club so our dj you know has the, all the massive speakers that she needs and we have funky lighting and uh and it's a black essentially a black box i wanted a dance club for this piece specifically and this was the only i mean this one was always in the back of my mind because i'd been in it before and it's in the tiger hotel which is you know centrally located in town and kind of funky but you can access it off the alley or go in through the the hotel but other dance clubs in town are open every night and it would have been incredibly expensive for me to try to rent that for <laughs> and take that away from the college kids who really need to, like, you know, let go up and let go <laughs> during finals. Is there anything else you want to add about being here? I'm going to give the dates out at the end of the show. We're sold out on Friday and the other nights are dwindling. And so I would just say, don't hesitate, you know, just get on it. If you don't get a ticket, you can show up at the door um, early. The show starts at eight. And so you can always get on a wait list and we usually get people in. But yeah, I'm excited for people to see it. The runtime is a little over an hour. It's very rare for uh, tickets to be available for Greenhouse at the last minute. So usually you are pretty almost, almost always a sellout show, it seems. It's true. And I usually field about 20 texts the day of a show saying, (laughs) hey, can you squeeze me in? I totally forgot. Oh, man. And it's rough because when people are like emailing Greenhouse, it's me. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if people always like realize that. So it's like, I'll be, it'll be 10 minutes before curtain and they'll be like, oh, can I get a ticket for you? And you're just like, yeah, this is me. I'm backstage. I am now Annie. I am no longer Elizabeth. (laughs) Switch. Thank you so much to Elizabeth Brown Palmieri and Jenny Hipshire. Being Here, a brand new play written and devised by Elizabeth, opens next Wednesday, May the 8th, The Industry, which is located at the back of the Tiger Hotel. The production runs for five nights, ending on Sunday, the 12th of May, and shows start at 8 p.m. You can find tickets at Greenhouse. 
greenhousetp.org slash tickets. And as with all Greenhouse shows, it is highly recommended to buy tickets in advance. Otherwise, you might be disappointed. Elizabeth and Jenny, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Diana. Thank you for being here. Thanks. (laughs) You're listening to Speaking of the Arts at 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. And after a short break, we'll be back with Sega Browdis Gallery Director, Hannah Reeves, and two of their featured May artists, Jeffrey Leader, who's going to be joining us in the studio. Plus, we'll hopefully be chatting by phone with another of their exhibitors, Brenda Stumpf. Don't wander off. My next guests are all visual artists. We are waiting for one guest to turn up, Hannah Reeves, who is the director and curator for the Sega Browdis Gallery and also an incredible artist. And joining her in the studio is Jeffrey Leader, who is one of the exhibiting artists in the current Sega Browdis show and is visiting from Greenville. And on the telephone, we have Brenda Stumpf, whose work is also in the show, and she lives in Pittsburgh, though I think we're calling her today in D.C. Hello, everyone, <laughs> and welcome to Speaking of the Arts. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Hi, Brenda. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> so last time I had Hannah on the show, it was to talk about the previous show that's just been taken down, which was all about Black Mountain College and the incredible influence that its alumni had on 20th century art. And for this May exhibit, there are five artists, but the two of you, when I look at your work and and read about you, I see a very direct artistic link back to those Black Mountain artists. So talk a little bit about that, Jeffrey. I feel the presence of Albers, Joseph Albers, in your work. Uh, Indeed. And also Annie Albers, for that matter. Both of them very much. Uh, well, the Bauhaus philosophy and the name of the series in which I am exhibiting is, I have named it Bauhaus as a dedication to the philosophy um, of the Bauhaus school. Uh, and part of it, what I like about it a lot is that uh, it evolved in uh, 1919 that they opened up the school, that um, it was a, a merging of the art and crafts uh, and not the hard line of separation between the two which I believe in. I, I think that is one is creative, one is creative. It doesn't need to be this hard line. And a, a beautifully designed and executed cup is just as important as a piece of fine art that's on the wall. And one of the aspects of uh, the Bauhaus is its uh, dedication and to modernism. I find your work very peaceful. It's very geometrically harmonious and the simple shapes and perfect lines. And I was that child that had to color within the lines. I couldn't stand coloring outside the lines. <laughs> and so I find a lot of peace when I look at your work. Talk a little bit about the arc of your artistic ancestry, a little bit, like who your mentors were and how that goes back to uh, Bauhaus and Black Mountain College. Sure. Uh, well, uh, I would like to touch on something a little divergent from that, but related nonetheless. And that is that I meditate quite a bit, two or three times a day. And um, only in the last 10 years have I had a practice of meditating. But it's also influenced my artwork. In, in the process of meditating, I look to focus on mindfulness and to understand my, myself and my own processes of thinking and, and being, for that matter. And it helped. It has helped to calm me down quite a bit. And in my artwork, since I use geometrics and I use color, I think of the geometrics as the juxtaposition of the different shapes as more rational, if you might, and that the colors are the expressive component of what I do. And then within that structure, uh, much like when one sits and meditates, there can be 
the transmission of a calmness and a mindfulness. And I'm very glad to hear that you, that my work has that effect on you. I know I think there's a lot of dissonance in our world today, a lot of aggression and uh, a lot of action. And sometimes it's good to just sort of slow down, think about things a little bit, and concentrate on the moment in which we are in, breathing and being. I, I agree, and I, I find that in your work. Brenda, I was looking online at your portfolio, and I was watching a little video, and I love your Cavomert series of works, ah, which have such a magnetic enchantment about them. They speak of things hidden and things found, of whispered conversations in primeval forests. And although that is not the body of work which you have in the Columbia show, your scratched photographs do have something of that same sense. So tell us about the body of work that you're showing at Sega Browdis. Yeah, that work, which is, I believe it's 10, uh, scratched photographs. And those photographs are not mine. They were found in a little, like, consignment shop. And I believe they're all little pictures of women, maybe with some children in the background. But they're pretty small, which, as you can tell by the work that you saw on my website, some of my work is really large. So these are quite intimate. And there was something about these little black and white photos when I took them home, and I kept them for quite a while. I didn't work on them, but I just took out an exacto blade and started scrawling, started taking things out. Um, and a lot of it ended up being taking out their faces, which was kind of strange. Um, but the scrawling and the women, and it kind of seemed like these very kind of vacant, calm, lonely, and it started revealing some of the things that I've been feeling in my own life. So it's always finding objects for me, materials, and that magic that comes from working with these materials that whatever's going on in my life gets imbued in them. And I just find it endlessly fascinating and magical when as passing of certain amounts of time goes and you look back at your work, what it mirrors back to you is always a little snapshot of where you were and, your and sometimes where you are. Sorry, your, your bodies of work are all very different. Is mm -hmm. it, there's one called Blood Roses, is that right? Uh, a very, oh, yeah. A very oh, yeah. visceral series of work. And then Cavamert oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, is so calm and, uh, and has this beautiful childlike innocence to it and, and say, speaks of the natural world and forest. Mm -hmm. Do you feel, does your body of work reflect the time of your life? Uh, it, it seems to. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think it's been a little like, a little over 20-some years that I can look back at these chunks of different works, things that intrigue me that sometimes seem unrelated at the, at the moment of, of starting them, you know, and some of those big works take years to make. Um, so in the course of making something like that, it really does chronicle the, the, the growing, the changing, uh, the peaks and valleys, interests, for sure. So, yeah, it, it is quite, uh, like, yeah, it's a little chart of, of my life. Now, you, you talk about, the fe about feeling the resonance of the material and looking for clues contained in the materials and then seeing <laughs> where intuition takes you. So talk about that yeah. sense of intuition and how it unfolds for you. Yeah, and so I'll take something with the Kavomert work, which is a made-up word uh, from Cave of My Heart. So 
that body of work started with objects from my childhood, uh, dresses, my uh, toys, and then also different wallpaper that I had scraped off a house that we were living in Denver. So loaded with all these kinds of historical pieces, but I was thinking about the fact that I'm, uh, now I'm 46, but I knew what I wanted to do when I was six. So revisiting those articles in, in putting them into work and remembering running around in the creek, running around in a forest, you know, playing those beautiful times when things, those impulses that were there early on were still there um, when I made that work. And I think it was 2015 that I finished. So, yeah, it is enchanting uh, place uh, with the Kavlmart work. And then I just wrote a lot and distilled it into little phrases, which then I made up words from those phrases. And so, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a special body of work. It, it is beautiful. I love the one of the three dresses where you had one had film coming out of the neck, one had kind of crystals mm-hmm. coming out of the neck of the dress, and the other yeah. one had twigs and sticks, I think. Is that right? Yeah. That was and, stunning. And some animal bones, as I believe. Yeah, it's very Alice in Wonderland kind of yes. enchanted. There's something beautiful, but something unnerving a little bit about that work, too. So I kind of like that. <laughs> it looked like it was very heavy. It is. Thank goodness I work out. I always say I work out so I can move my own artwork because I don't have assistance. It's all me. <laughs> Jeffrey, you talked a little bit earlier about using uh, the difference between color and form and how you find your emotional expression through color and, and your kind of desire to transmit a spiritual order through those two um, mediums. Talk a little bit about that, that seeking of a spiritual order. Sure. Well, part of you touched on it before. Part of it was... Uh the calmness that you get from experiencing my work. And the, the work, doing the work itself is, I go into this sort of meditative trance, if you might, um, mostly when selecting color. I don't, um, I, I do studies that are quite small. And in that, I allow myself to drift between a selection of colors that I have pre-mixed uh, many, many in my studio, probably a thousand colors are pre-mixed. And, and it just, it's like a reverie, a, uh, a harmonious reverie in which I'm selecting. I put down one color and then I look at it and I, and I, I don't think rationally what the next color would be. I, I allow myself to just be intuitive about it and select another color that would go next to this other one. And then I go from one color to the next until the piece is finished. And I, and I want that, that sense of reverie to be expressed th- through the color and in, into whoever it is that's seeing my work. Uh, and that's, I guess, part of the calmness that, that comes from it. Um, and I, I don't think about anything else. I'm really in the moment looking at the colors and selecting them. And it's, um, it's quite a joy to do the work, I must say. Um, and now you don't really follow color theory when you're choosing your palette. It's just what feels right to you in that emotional moment. Uh, that's, that's right. Uh, it's, it's not a logical process. Uh, I wouldn't say it's uh, illogical either, but it is intuitive and it is um, a quite, quite an emotional experience for me. I, uh, and a lot of it is about joy. Um, and that's something that when I was younger, I did not allow myself to experience very much. I was very driven. Uh, but as I, the last 20, 
years, I would say mostly I've allowed myself to be more joyful and to enjoy other people and to talk to other people, to have an exchange like this, which is a wonderful thing, and and also just to deal with the people at the Sager Browdus Gallery. I, I'm very appreciative that they chose me uh, to exhibit with them. and. It pushed me. I live in Greenville, South Carolina, which is about a 12-hour drive, and I drove here with my artwork, and I dropped it off on Monday. And I made a couple of stops and saw some friends along the way in Nashville and St. Louis, and everybody at the gallery was so welcoming on Monday morning. It was, uh, you know, just another an extension of, of a joyful experience. And then I went to see a little later, and the work was up already. It was just all came together beautifully, and it looks wonderful. I hope people will go and and check it out uh, tonight or tomorrow morning. We have an 11 to, to 2 uh, slow Saturday art. Um, and I'll be there talking a little further about my work and my experiences. Hannah, I was talking at the top of the show about the last show you had, the Black Mountain College, and how I saw this connection, certainly, between Jeffrey's work and, and Alba's work. And then uh, also Brenda had I'd been reading something that she uh, interviewed that she'd done and how Cy Twombly was very influenced mm -hmm. to her. So when you were choosing the artists for this show that followed the Black Mountain College show, were you mm -hmm. cognizant of that? Was that part of the choice of these, these artists? Yes, yeah. You know, we were steeped in Bauhaus and Black Mountain for, you know, about a year, really, and especially the last several months. And um, I, Jeffrey, I can't remember whether the Bauhaus series was in your submission, but I knew as soon as we started digging in and really looking at because Jeffrey has a huge number of bodies of work that are kind of cohered by, I would say, by palette, right? They're kind of these, um, there are these subsets. And the Bauhaus was, that was intriguing, of course, because we were thinking about um, Albers and the influence of the Bauhaus here. And so we did actually ask specifically for that series, and we did, you know, particularly um, love that series. So we're happy to have it following. You know, we do a lot of work to talk with people and kind of educate about art history or just engage, you know, about art history. And so coming off of a, a more historical exhibit like that, yes, if we can continue to talk about those ideas and that influence, which really that was what the last show was about, was this lingering and expansive influence of the Bauhaus and then of Black Mountain and those artists, if we can continue to talk about that and kind of stretch that out and, and continue to show it, then that behooves us. <laughs> Brenda, I, I have been open on this show about my disdain for sidewalk. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, no. Tell us, tell us what, you, what spoke to you from his work and how it influenced you. That's quite a yeah. setup. <laughs> well, here, I'll, I'll tell you at the crux of where I was and then where I went in about 2006, Three, I believe it was. My work was very colorful, calligraphic, flat, and I had been playing around. I and I'll preface this: I left art school after two years, so thinking what I was going to do versus what I've done, two different worlds. But at that moment in time, I had started adding little elements of found objects and things, and I have a very deep love of history and mythology and all of these kinds of things. So when I was really kind of on the fence and worried, like I didn't have the 
credentials to do certain things, and I, I didn't know what I was doing, but I was starting to build sculpture, and I was starting to build these relief things. And they were abstract, and I found objects, and I happened to go to D.C., which I'm here now, which is so bizarre. Um, and around 2003, I think it was a Jasper John show and a Cy Twombly sculpture show at the National Gallery. And what I did and what I found was a kinship with materials and something that said was a green light for me to explore this kind of art making that was already a really big impulse. I mean, there was just stuff all over my floor where I was living and working and just found objects and half-made sculptures. So for, for me, he was an in and a green light to explore this way of working and the kind of materials. So that was... That to me is a big point, and if you saw some of my big work in person, there's that is definitely like a switch in the track for me was that time in his work, specifically his sculpture. So, well, I I, <laughs> I do love your work, and I and I guess I'm not that familiar with Saitwamli sculpture, so I'll give him mm-hmm. the benefit of the doubt, and I'll. <laughs> there you go. That's the homework. homework, and we'll talk. <laughs> now, in your artist statement, you talk about the profound healing power that is inherent in the creation of art not only of one's own life, but also of one's ancestral lineage and collective pain body. So unpack that for us a little. How much time you got? Um, <laughs> I think, no, I really do find that there's, at the same time that you're working and creating, there's different levels and depths. I kind of look at time and these things as like depths of layers. And there are energetic paradigms there's patterns from your family and patterns from a culture patterns that are imbued in certain ways and in certain intensities and different people and for me i feel and i'm obviously in tune to this kind these kinds of things the thinking the feeling so the unraveling of it it's like peeling and letting go layers of an onion as things are released through it and again i'm really interested in you know metaphysics and different spiritual aspects of being and all of these layers of looking at life. And so for me, it is a really rich place to discharge some of these things, these kind of mm, sticky points. Um, And through the process of making art, it really does get discharged and imbued in the object. And then, like I said, it could be months, years later that I really start to feel different and see the work as a place where something had changed in me. But it's usually in hindsight. I really don't know what the heck I'm doing half the time when I'm in it. It really is. I'm just that intuitive notion, but it is those big, huge, deep uh, things that feel that are changed. Um, yeah, it's, it's pretty visceral for me and powerful. So Now, when you imbue a sticky point of your life or past or lineage mm-hmm. in a work is it something that when you behold it later on has beauty in it or it has pain attached to it or, or can you it's, see the pain from a distance it, it's absolutely both because in the real you it's like walk they say like how you have to walk through you can't avoid it the pain you ha- you can't jump over it ignore it you know it'll always come back and you know when it's coming back but after you know that you, it's, it's not in you anymore, it never comes mm-hmm. back in the same way. It, never, it has, doesn't have a resonance to you. Mm-hmm. It doesn't get you. You can look at it like an observer and not 
be emotionally charged about it. It's a really slight difference, but looking at certain works and knowing what was going through in my life and my thinking and my ideas, it, it, it just looks like I'm looking at something that doesn't get me going anymore. And that's, that's pretty powerful. Yeah. Jeffrey, you've talked about having had a difficult childhood and that you grew up feeling angry and sarcastic and you were hard to be with. How much does that idea of the creation of art as a means of healing resonate with you? Well, it also starts from a, uh, an exploration of uh, philosophy, both Eastern and Western philosophy. You know, I have certain uh, guides in my life, we'll call them, uh, Joseph Campbell's certainly one of them, and his exploration of myth and the story of people, in essence, and how we evolve, and the hero's journey through life, where in all, in all the heroes, uh, every hero in all the myths is injured at some point in the story, uh, as we all have been at some point in our lives, I imagine, uh, or maybe even various times. And it's how we deal with that injury that makes us who we are. We can succumb to the injury and walk around wounded, or we can understand that uh, it's part of life and uh, not to just disregard it, but integrate it into our lives as, as something that occurred and an opportunity to, uh, to find joy in our lives, uh, which ultimately is what it's about, you know, being with people and talking and communicating, either verbally or through artwork or or even through what we, how we conduct our lives. Um, you know, I, 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 my, my sense of myself is that I'm here to be helpful uh, in various ways. And um, any ways that I can manifest that, I will, I will try to do that to the best of my abilities. And Hannah, um, let me ask you as an artist rather than as a gallery director mm -hmm. and curator, I mean, yeah, in your work, how does art creation as a process of healing or, or adding your life onto, uh, into a work and then being able to step back from it. Is that part of your process too? I, I really like that idea. I can't remember exactly how Brenda said it, but basically like <clears throat> putting it into a position where now you can see it from the third person. Mm. I like the idea of putting an experience into a piece of work so that you can step back from it. I hadn't really, I don't think of my process that way and I hadn't thought of it that way. I go at it in a way that, that each of these artists has also described where I do kind of enter a flow state at certain times and intuit what is happening after a lot of planning, you know, and I think a lot of us kind of combine like a planning or a critical stage and mm -hmm. then a flow state and then exiting that into a critical state. And then it's even <laughs> like complicated by, you know, the fact of running a gallery and thinking about what people will say and what people will buy and like not letting that enter in during parts of that state. But yeah, I can see that it probably is true, though I've never articulated it like Brenda, um, that stepping back from the experience once it is separated into a new object is kind of part of a, a healing process. I think that's really intriguing. As a non-art creator, I'm, I'm having a lot of envy right now that you have this <laughs> wonderful means of working through a difficult, sticky patch in your life and then just being able to step back from it and, and let it fly off. No, we don't, we don't <laughs> have more words. Everyone's, everyone's thinking about yes. it. <laughs> I'm curious for, for a question for all of you, really. How you manage to tune out the noise, you know, beautiful though it may be, all the other art in the world, all the great 
works that have been created and the messages that have been imbued and how do you not let that affect you too much and stay in tune with your own artistic voice and direction jeffrey i guess meditation for you is the means for that yes and i I think uh you know putting into perspective if you look at the arc of humanity and all the people that have existed in this world and will exist and do exist at the moment we are a mere speck one way uh, i think to achieve uh, joy and happiness in life is to understand that you know this is not all there is there's there's a lot of things going on in this world and um, we have our little opportunity time of opportunity to do our thing and and that's it and this is i mean it could be any moment could be the last moment not to be more you know depressing about it but more realistic and and do your best when you have that opportunity Brenda, your voice is so strong in your work. And I would imagine if I was another artist looking at your work, I'd think, well, I'm just going to give up because clearly, you know, Brenda's cornered the market on this. I mean, she's just totally got it. Oh, dear. Oh. <laughs> I said sometimes I, I hang something that makes me so jealous. I hung those on the wall. I was like, oh. <laughs> but she made you know, What you bring up is exactly, though, where I'm at. I'm in D.C. and I just saw Mark Bradford's Pickett's Charge at the Hirshhorn National Museum of the um, Arts. I can hardly talk when I think about this. Ursula von Riemsverd's, um show up here. I literally almost just broke down and cried. Um, so when you think, yeah, how do you find your way and continue when you see beautiful, just, just beautifully made hard work yeah it's you have to start where you are and those little voices those little impulses take this turn use this material it doesn't come for me in these big sweeping ideas it's really little here little step here little step here and pretty soon you end up in a direction in a space that you never thought you'd be in because you did put the work in and you did follow these little, you know, missteps and a great step and a this and a that. And a, but it's the willingness to follow those little intuitive. So for me, doing all these different kinds of things always accumulates every like probably three to five years into some different space that I would never think I was with the materials and the maybe the size and stuff but seeing people's work that I love and being humbled and then at the same time being like you gotta keep going right. look at that work it's jaw-dropping so yeah I'm right there <laughs> well, I, I wish we had. I wish we had more time to talk. I always run out of time. But um, al- alongside Jeffrey Leader and Brenda Stump's work are works by Kate Arndt, Mark English, and Cody McCluth. The May exhibit at the Sega Browdis Gallery has its opening reception tonight from six to nine as part of the monthly North Village Arts District First Friday event. And you can find out more and see the work of all the artists in the show at SegaBroudisGallery.com. And you can link to everybody's website from there if you want to see their other. Books 
bodies of work, which I would definitely recommend you do. Hannah Reeves, Jeffrey Leader, and Brenda Stump, thank you so much for spending time with thank us you, today. Diana. You are listening thank to Speaking you. of the Arts, and before we hand the airwaves over to Terry Gross and Fresh Air, I have a list of arts events coming up that would like to find their way into your diaries. Tonight is opening night at Stevens College Playhouse for the musical comedy Pippin, the hilarious tale of a young prince searching for meaning and adventure in his life. Showtime's at 7.30 tonight and tomorrow with a 2 p.m. matinee on Sunday. And tickets are $18 and that show continues next weekend. At Maplewood Barn, you can see Floyd Collins, a bluegrass musical with performances tonight, tomorrow and Sunday night starting at 8. Tickets are $12 and the box office opens one hour prior to showtime and this is the final weekend for that show. Trips Children's Theatre performs Alice in Wonderland Junior at the Stevens College Warehouse Theatre tonight and tomorrow at 7 p.m. Plus there are two 2 p.m. matinee performances on both Saturday and Sunday. Tonight at the Missouri Theatre, you can see Big Smith and the Ozark Mountain Daredevils reunited in concert almost seven years to the day since they were last here. That concert starts at 7 p.m. and tickets start at $50. Odyssey Chamber Music Series perform their spring night concert tonight at First Baptist Church, performing works by Schumann, Manotti and Debussy. Their show or their concert starts at 7 and tickets are $20, which you can buy on the door. And tonight is also First Friday in the North Village Arts District with new art shows on display at the Sega Browdis Gallery, Dogwood Artist Workspace and Resident Arts and also there's live music at Fretboard Coffee, Rose Park and Outlandish Gallery and drop into Orr Street too to see what's going on down there. Uh, tomorrow morning from 10 till 12 at Ragtag Cinema, there's a free screening for the First Nations Film and Video Festival, featuring four shorts and one feature-length film. Tomorrow night at Talking Horse Theatre is the next in the girl Rilla season of one-night-only dynamic stage readings produced by Meg Phillips-Crespi. This month, Girl Rilla combined two one-act plays written a century apart. Susan Glassbill's play Trifles, written in 1916, and He Killed My Bird by Claudia Barnett, written in 2014, both of which address the same mystery. Admission is free of charge. It's on a first-come, first-seated basis, and that show starts at 7.30. And also, Talking Horse will be announcing its 2020 season during the intermission. At 4 p.m. on Sunday afternoon, the Columbia Community Band is playing their spring concert, a May medley of musical miscellany at the Hickman High School Auditorium. This is a free event, although donations are welcomed. At the Missouri Theatre on Sunday at 5pm, the Missouri Symphony Conservatory performs their Spring Showcase concert featuring all state and district competition winners from across central Missouri. Tickets are 10 for adults and free for under 18s. Sunday is, of course, Cinco de Mayo, which you can celebrate at Rose Park with music by Dal Alma and La Movida, tacos by Pepe and plenty of margaritas and cervezas. The party kicks off at 5pm and $5 gets you in. Monday night, nationally renowned comedians Kathleen Madigan and Lewis Black return to the Missouri Theatre to benefit the M.U. Thompson Center for Autism and Neurodevelopmental Disorders. Tickets start at 47.50 and the performance starts at 7 and you can find tickets for that at concertseries.missouri.edu Next Wednesday is, as we had on the show earlier, is the opening night for Greenhouse Theatre Project's new play Being Here, written and devised by Elizabeth Bratton Palmieri 
The play will be performed at the industry, which is behind the Tiger Hotel. Tickets are $16, and that production runs for just five nights through Sunday the 12th of May. You have been listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia with me, Diana Moxett, and my good friend and sound engineer, Mike Hagan. We'll be back next week with more news, views, and interviews on the arts in mid-Missouri. Stay arty, Columbia. Thank you.